Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called My Soul Proclaims, Submission and Subversion in Mary's Magnificat. It's a guest essay by Sarah Miles, author of the new book, Take This Bread, A Radical Conversion, which, by the way, is reviewed on our website, Journey with Jesus. Sarah Miles is the Director of Ministries at St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church in San Francisco, where she founded the Food Pantry. Her essay, My Soul Proclaims, is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 16, 2007, the third Sunday in Advent. Mary, Mary, Mary. Gentle virgin, meek and mild. For centuries, the church has tried to portray Mary as submissive, and thus paradigmatic for female lives on earth. The church has suggested, not so subtly by the way, that just as Mary turned over her will to God, so should women turn over their wills to God's representatives on earth that is, to serving the church and its officials. This archetype of Mary glosses motherhood, the fiercest, most powerful and passionate occupation known to humans, with sentimentality. It bathes a revolutionary risk-taker with the glow of goodness and docility. It twists Mary's obedience to God into the suggestion that the weak owe obedience to powerful humans, priests, husbands, masters, and rulers. But listen, in Luke's, in Matthew's gospel for this week, Mary sings a new song. The Magnificat, for so it is named from the first word of the text in the Latin translation called the Vulgate, follows Mary's astonishing encounter with the angel Gabriel and her running to Elizabeth as an evangelist to share the good news. It is, of course, profoundly unsettling news. Mary doesn't need a man to have a baby. She isn't going to follow worldly social norms. In fact, she prophesies the overturning of the whole social order, proclaiming that the lowly will be lifted up, the rich turned away empty. She doesn't ask permission of kings or family to step off the precipice into unprecedented experience. Her proclamation that God is at work in her body shows us, even before Jesus does, what it means to truly submit, not to the world, but to God. Today in America, truly submitting to God, surrendering yourself, body and soul, womb and lungs, heart and mind and hands, remains a profoundly transgressive and unworldly act. Submission isn't something we talk about a lot in this culture, unless we're talking about sexual kink or about coerced obedience to armies and laws, powers and principalities. Mostly, though, our systems, religious as well as secular, 
Work on the principle of individual gratification, self-awareness, self-improvement, self-esteem. Our cliches are endless. We believe in being true to yourself, finding your own way, buying or willing your way into an identity. The defended, defined individual self along with its purportedly individual salvation, is at the center of most American theology. Theology that echoes the perspective of the ubiquitous market that rules our secular lives. Why be a servant, after all, when you could polish your own soul the way you shape your body through exercise and surgery? Why be weak and helpless when you could be powerful? Why not choose your own beliefs? Why not will your own sins away? Why surrender to God when you could be a self-made man or woman? But the prophet Mary stands among us, breathing quietly and humming under her breath. Now, as then, she addresses the emptiness of the pretense that, we're not, that we are in control of our lives. Mary proclaims that after the Annunciation and everything that follows, all generations will call her blessed. But Mary's obedience to God doesn't yield the kind of blessing most of us ask for when we pray. She has said yes without knowing what God will do. She is submitting to humiliation, physical pain, dislocation, terror, and loss. She loses herself to become, quite literally, Theotokos, the bearer of God. It is really hard to bear God. It is, in fact, unbearable without God. Any woman who's born a child, any man who's fathered a child, any person who has truly loved another person has been in Mary's position, a God-bearer carrying love through this violent and dangerous world that we're unable to control. And, like Mary, we can't choose how God will bless us. We might receive a blessing as terrifying as having a child tortured and killed, as impossible as having the hungry filled. We're not passive in this process any more than Mary was. We must work and pray and imagine and act as bravely and intelligently as she did. But, like Mary, we must say yes without knowing what will happen next. Mary's Magnificat is a song of joy and shared rejoicing, and it also points directly to the cross, foreshadowing the passion of Jesus. It's the closest we get in Advent to the darkest, most frightening, most transcendent moment in the Gospels, when Jesus surrenders his will, his hope, his very life, and puts everything in God's hands. My soul is in torment, says Jesus. 
But what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this hour that I came. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' obedience is not a ritual obedience, but a passionate surrender. It's at the heart of his humanity, the heart of his divinity. And he learned it from his mom. So, like the God-bearer, Theotokos, let us pray this week to take the Spirit of God into our own bodies. Let us submit to God's blessings. Let us share the good news of the world turned upside down with our sisters and brothers. And let us dare to follow the way proclaimed by Mary's song. The Magnificat leads to new life, and it leads to the cross, and it leads to new life. Alleluia. And for further reflection, see Yaroslav Pelikan. The title of the book, Mary Through the Centuries, Her Place in the History of Culture. Yale University Press, 1996. And for further reflection, perhaps ask yourself, what has been your own experience in your Christian life of Mary, either positive or negative? And secondly, what would it mean for you to submit yourself to God's blessing, not knowing exactly what that blessing would look like. My soul proclaims submission and subversion in Mary's Magnificat, a guest essay by Sarah Miles. <clears throat> For books this week, we also have a guest book review. The title of the book is Animal, Vegetable, Miracle, A Year of Food Life by Barbara Kingsolver. New York, HarperCollins, 2007, 384 pages. This is a guest book review by Milton Brasher Cunningham, a writer and chef who's married to a minister in the United Church of Christ. They'll soon move from their home south of Boston to Durham, North Carolina, where Ginger, Milton's wife, will pastor a UCC, and Milton will cook and write. Milton Brasher Cunningham, a review of Animal Vegetable Miracle. When I picked up Barbara Kingsolver's new memoir, I expected Walden with a family. She was moving with her husband, a professor of environmental science, and two daughters from their home in the southwest back to his family farm in Virginia. As a part of the move, they decided they would eat only what they could grow or find grown or made within a hundred miles of their house. The challenge seemed admirable, but I was a bit skeptical. They already owned the farm, and the royalties alone from King Solver's The Poisonwood Bible must have afforded them a comfortable lifestyle. Yet, the story she tells is informative without being didactic personal without being overly sentimental. Plus, it's authentic 
and real. Though Kingsolver writes the bulk of the memoir, her husband peppers the book with scientific articles, and her college-age daughter shares anecdotes and recipes. The young daughter shows her entrepreneurial spirit with her burgeoning egg business. As the family's year in food begins to unfold, what emerges is a call to nothing less than a food ethic, making the case for restraint as a virtue. We're raising our children, writes King Solver, on the definition of promiscuity if we feed them a casual, indiscriminate mingling of foods from every season plucked from the supermarket, ignoring how our sustenance is cheapened by wholesale desires. About six summers ago, I planted my first tomatoes in our backyard. Here in New England, planting doesn't happen until Memorial Day, so we had to wait for the fruits of our labor until almost Labor Day. One trip in from the garden to make tomato sandwiches with the ones we had grown taught us that only tomatoes worth eating are fresh tomatoes in season. I don't buy them any other time. They're worth the wait. King Solver's food year highlighted how separated we've become from the food we eat. We think meat comes shrink-wrapped, and vegetables are always uniform in size and stack easily into pyramids. Her family's sojourn showed how important physical and relational connections are to what we eat. Beyond the taste and even the economies of eating locally, the human contact with those who grew and produced the food changed the family and deepened the meanings of their meals. The biggest surprise in the book for me was that King Solver made no case for vegetarianism. Her discussion about being an ethical carnivore is some of her best writing, and also true to the spirit of farming. Again, here she spoke to the relational ethic of eating. The second surprise came as she began to draw the year to a close. The biggest shock of our year, writes King Solver, came when we added up the tab. We had fed ourselves organically and pretty splendidly, we thought, on about 50 cents per family member per meal. Probably less than I spent in the years when I qualified for food stamps. The life King Solver describes is one built around an ethic of restraint, relationship, and resolve. Her final words are poignant and prophetic, echoing preachers from long ago. For everything, there's a season. Barbara King Solver, Animal, Vegetable, Miracle. A guest book review by Milton Brasher Cunningham. For film this week, I review 310 to Yuma from the year 2007. Hollywood's star power shines in this remake of the 1957 film of the same title. The plot epitomizes simplicity, but it twists and turns for 90 minutes, and only in the final minute does it find resolution. Resolution, I might add, of a sort.
Dan Evans, played by Christian Bale, is a down-on-his-luck rancher who's not only losing his ranch and the respect of his two boys, but even his own self-respect. And so he seeks to redeem himself and earn a handsome $200 by joining a posse to take a truly bad outlaw, Ben Wade, played by Russell Crowe, to the 310 train in contention that will take Wade to Yuma and deposit him in the federal slammer. Redemption for himself, justice for Wade, a man who has robbed 21 stagecoaches. It sounds simple enough, but there are Apache Indians in front of them, Ben Wade's truly bad gang behind them, and the Wiley Wade with them. Spooky campfires, rampaging stagecoaches, harsh landscapes, saloons with pretty women, whiskey gulping, way too much gratuitous violence, and non-stop trash talking make this a cowboy classic. Directed by James Mangold, who made Girl Interrupted, and also the Johnny Cash bio, Walk the Line. 310 to Yuma, starring Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. And finally for this Advent season, for poetry we've posted a poem by John Donne called Annunciation. John Donne lived from 1572 to 1631. Annunciation. Salvation to all that will is nigh, that all, which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die, Lo, faithful virgin, yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb, and though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear, taken from thence, flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spheres time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son, and brother, whom thou conceivest, conceived. Yet thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and shutst in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. John Donne, Annunciation. Thank you for joining us on the third Sunday in Advent, December 16th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.